Good morning again, and you may be seated. And I would direct your attention to your uh, printed information you're given. There's some notes in there, as usual, and if that will help you to follow along or even take some notes, then uh, do that as you see fit. Well, I trust that you noticed just a moment ago that our reading from Psalm 8, in part, was uh, quoted again in the epistle reading from Hebrews. How many of you caught that? Okay, the rest of you need to go get a cup of coffee or something. Okay. It's, uh, and that was by design, of course, by those who uh, put our, our lectionaries together. It should come as no surprise, really, that we see that quoted because some 10% of what we read in the New Testament is the Old Testament. That's remarkable, isn't it? It's especially true of the letter to Hebrews, which really is itself a written sermon. In his closing remarks... The preacher, whose name we don't know, we have no idea who wrote it, the preacher says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Sounds like a preacher, doesn't it? An exhortation is a persuasive appeal that is usually couched in words of both encouragement and warning. We saw a warning in the reading from Hebrews, did we not? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And though we don't know the preacher in this case, we do know his audience. And they are, as the title Hebrews suggests, Jewish believers, even as the apostles and many of the first followers of Christ were. But the Roman Empire was, while it was very tolerant of religions, they didn't really care what your religion was or how strange it was or any such thing. But they were not so understanding about the Christian religion. Judaism, yes, but not the followers of Jesus. These Hebrew Christians also, because of that, were facing pressure from within their own families, from those who did not share their faith in Jesus, to the point where some of them were throwing in the towel. Some of them had said, I've had enough, and they were abandoning the faith. Thus, our unknown preacher offers them words of warning of the dire eternal consequences of turning back, but also interspersed with those warnings are words of encouragement to them and to us to hang in there to stay in the fight, because we will win the battle. Our psalm for today says, Yet you have made him, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. Now the psalmist, King David, of course, is referring to our ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, in their pure, unfallen state before they rebelled against God. But the preacher, in this case, applies it to Jesus, the second Adam. As English Baptist Raymond Brown puts it, Jesus has come into the world to show us what man is like in God's original purpose. That was what Adam and Eve did. And what man can be through Christ's effective work. Christ came, he says, not only to share our humanity, but to transform it. You'll notice in Psalm 8, it is said of Adam that he was made a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels. But in Hebrews 2, the same phrase regarding Jesus has a different twist. It says, you made him not a little lower than the angels, but for a little while lower than the angels. Any of you catch that in the reading? Did you see that? It's just a slight little difference, but it's absolutely true, and it's what the author wanted to convey. Namely, that little while, that little time, is our Lord's 33 years or so of life on earth, when he became like us in every way, and yet being sinless. 
And even though he was sinless, he was tortured and put to death as a sinner. Why? Well, verse 9 of Hebrews 2 says, So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The grace of God is what's behind it all. The English Puritan John Owen says of this passage of Scripture, The grace of God was the moving and impulsive cause of death of Christ. The gracious, free, sovereign purpose and will of God. And while it is true that as we sing in the hymn, O Worship the King, that we are, I love the phrase, frail children of dust, and we're as feeble as we are frail. In spite of that, it is equally true that as followers of Jesus, we also, in spite of that, will never suffer the death penalty for our sins. Why? Because Jesus did that. As Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And when the Bible speaks of Christ dying for us in verses like that, it doesn't simply mean for our benefit, although that is certainly the case. But it also means in our place, in our stead. He dies in our place. Now, one other thing. Don't trip over that phrase in verse 9 that speaks of Jesus tasting death. We all know what a taste is, right? If you ask somebody for a taste of something, you usually just want just a little bite or a little sip. That's not the case here. Jesus is not saying that, well, he just took a taste of death. No, no. Think of Jesus in the garden the night before, where he prays. And what does he pray? He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And on the very next day, we certainly see, do we not, that this was no mere taste from the cup. For as he hangs on the cross, suspended between earth and heaven, he cries out, not my father, but rather he cries out, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? For indeed, the Father could not look on his Son. Because there, Jesus was becoming sin for you and me. And the Father turns away. It is only after the last drop of that cup is drunk that Jesus is able to declare, it is finished. And then, then, and only then, he can once again say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And beloved, that is why. That is how God the Father is, in the words of verse 10, not just bringing God the Son into glory, but what does it say, verse 10? Many sons to glory. Because that's the prize. In one word, that's the prize, glory. I preached on this a number of months ago, where Paul talks about this eternal weight of glory that will be ours forever, which far outweighs the light and momentary afflictions of this life. Near the end of his sermon, our unknown preacher appeals to us to keep our eyes, therefore, on not just Jesus, but on the crucified Jesus. Listen to what he says in chapter 12, verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race, this marathon, not a dash or a sprint. It's a marathon. The, set, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Just a word about that. When you despise something, or someone for that matter, you count them as nothing. You, you just ignore them. 
And that's what it's saying here, that Jesus, the shameful aspect of crucifixion, more than, not even just the, the physical pain alone is horrific, but the idea of what a disgrace it was and the manner in which they crucified people in public where they would be cursed and cheered and mocked. The scripture says Jesus just ignored all that. He didn't let it attach itself to him. And that's why he was able to endure. And that is his word to us. He is now, as it says, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which is the place of glory and the place of honor. Well, the word founder, as it says in verse uh, chapter 12, the founder and perfecter of our faith, it's the same word the preacher uses in verse 10 of our text, where Jesus is called the founder of our salvation. And here, I much, much prefer the words of the King James Version, where Jesus is called the captain of our salvation. Isn't that nice? Doesn't that have a nicer ring? Isn't that, isn't that more fitting? And it's more fitting than I even imagined as I began to study on this and think about it and contemplate it. But I also ask myself, why just a captain? I mean, a captain is an officer, but that's just like one grade above a lieutenant, right? I mean, why not a general? Why not the general? Well, I think the reason why is because captains are the ones who actually go before the troops in the battle. Can't have the generals getting all shot up, right? The captains are the ones who lead their companies into battle. And it's our captain, Jesus, in whose steps we follow as he followed the Father's will in obedience. And that's who we follow. He leads us into battle because he has been where he's asking us to go. Now, I know all this militaristic stuff is not very fashionable in many churches these days. But it's really quite accurate and quite helpful, in my humble opinion. I've never experienced combat, but I know it's painful on many levels and most difficult. And it is thus a fitting image for the struggles that we face as believers in this world. Oh, but some of you say, well, all that's just figurative speech, right? Mere metaphor. Really? Well, the New Testament just happens to be filled with teachings on our warfare and the nature of the struggle that we are in. For example, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And we wage war furthermore on three different fronts at the same time. The world, meaning not the planet, but, but the culture around us that would shape us into its mold and change us. The flesh, that still powerful, sinful impulses that still indwell us as, as Christians. And finally, the devil, our arch enemy. Are these real? Go like this if you believe they're real. Yes, they are. They're not figures of speech. Romans 8 is another great example. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, there it is again, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is all the things we need for the fight. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, the place of glory and honor, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, weapon of combat? 
The answer, of course, was a resounding no. Still, this doesn't sound much like victory, does it? Sounds more like defeat. But no, Paul goes on to say no. In all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul goes on to say, for I am sure, I am persuaded, as the King James says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Still, why the suffering? And again, I, just briefly, let me just read you something I came across. Anglican, uh, Australian scholar Leon Morris, late Leon Morris, said this about the suffering that we undergo. For Christians, as for their master, there is a perfection, or a perfection in suffering. Little as we may like them, the fires of affliction are the place in which the qualities of Christian character are forged. No one wants to suffer, but the Christian cannot regard suffering as an unmitigated evil. He can agree that it is an evil, but he knows that born in the right spirit, and there's the key, it is the means of an increasing Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness, as you've often heard me say, is what the Bible calls sanctification, that process by which God is taking the things out of our lives that are not like Jesus and putting back in things that are like Jesus. And that can sometimes be painful. But the reward, even in this life, is this. Verses 11 and 12 of our text. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus claims us. I won't ask how many of you have siblings or have had siblings that, like much Jimmy Carter, I'm sure, did with his brother. Some of you are old enough to remember Billy. How many times did the president must have rolled his eyes and he'd sigh over his latest antics? We all have had, perhaps, siblings like that. But Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Romans 8, 29 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, and hence he is our elder brother. And a quick sidebar here. A footnote in the ESV, this translation, our translation, we use notes that brothers, the Greek word adelphoi, can be rendered brothers and sisters. Because indeed, in the plural, it often reads siblings in a family, just using one word for that. Now, that's not just some nod to political correctness. Indeed, what is implied here is not just brothers or males, obviously, but what that which in verse 11 says, we all have one source. The New English Bible says we are all of one stock. I like that. And the NIV, we are all of the same family. Beloved, it's the family of God. You and I are kin. And that's always a mixed bag, right? With the holidays coming up, we know what that's like. It brings family together. And, and again, there will be much sighing and rolling of the eyes, but we are family. And that is how Jesus looks at you and me. He doesn't look at us with a sigh and a rolling of the eyes, but he is glad to assume us as part of his family, assuming that you are his child. He's not ashamed to claim us as brothers and sisters. And aren't you glad for that? One day while teaching a crowd, someone told Jesus, his mother uh, and brothers were outside. They'd like a word with you, please. And to which our Lord replied, and I almost think, again, maybe with some exasperation, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
So was our Lord again just speaking figuratively here? Are we just, so to speak, kind of like family, kind of brothers and sisters? Just a mere metaphor and analogy? No. No, it's not. This morning, we're going to baptize. And I say we because that's what we do as a church. We as a church do the baptizing. You realize that, right? It's a glorious thing. And what is baptism? It is the sacrament of death and rebirth. We die with Christ in baptism. We are raised to, to new life. And he again claims us as his kin. In chapter 8 of John's Gospel, we read of a particularly nasty confrontation Jesus had with the Pharisees who boasted that unlike Jesus, they were the two children of Abraham. You're not in the family, they said. We are, the, we are Abraham's children. To which our Lord says, well, you may be his seed, his physical descendants, but you were not his children. His techna is the Greek word. They're a different word, which means dear ones, his little ones, as it is often translated. It is a term of endearment. Later, just before his crucifixion, having dismissed the traitor Jesus, our Lord gathers the remaining 11 around him. And he says to them, to these rough, tough fishermen, these, these sons of thunder, as our Lord nicknamed James and John, here's what he tells them. Little children. Same word, little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And John himself, that son of thunder who once asked the Lord, Lord, let me call down fire from heaven to destroy these guys. This same guy says in his letter, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. By this we know that we have laid down, or that he has laid down his life for us. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, little children, John says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth. Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Great scene, probably the best scene in the play, I guess. The evening before the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. The day will be called St. Crispin's Day. That was the day of, his, of that saint. And it's called St. Crispin's Day speech, just the last part of it. The king says to his troops as they're amassed and getting ready to go into the fight, from this day to the end of the world, we shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he never so vile. Beloved, you and I as the church are in a far greater conflict, with far higher stakes. And we serve not an earthly king, but rather the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. May it be said of us, we band of brothers and sisters in Christ, what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica. Listen to what he says to them. Your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, Paul says, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions 
and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, our elder brother, our captain, may this be true of us, both as individuals and together as your church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.